Well, this evening we'll be looking at Psalm 51 together. And uh, this is a very rich passage of Scripture. It's a cry of confession and repentance. And in this psalm we find the words of a man whose conscience has been pricked by the Holy Spirit. These are the words of someone who loves the Lord and has sinned against God in a terrible way. And yet when confronted with the reality of their wickedness, they cry out in desperation for forgiveness. This prayer really models for us how we are to confess, how we are to truly repent. Psalm 51 is a prayer that is a template for us, a template of true and contrite repentance. Now a little bit of background about this psalm. This psalm was written by King David, a character that we find in the Old Testament who is remembered in scripture as a man after God's own heart. And not only is David remembered as a man after God's own heart, but Christ is born from the lineage of David. And through the line of David comes our Savior who fulfills the promise that was first given to Eve in the garden. Now I tell you about the saintliness of David only because in this psalm we see his wretched sinfulness. This is one of the few psalms that gives us a direct historical context. We don't often know the occasion behind each psalm, but in Psalm 51, you'll notice in this little introduction here, we read a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. What we have is a precise event in history that is connected to the writing of this psalm, the story of David and Bathsheba. And this, of course, is a well-known and tragic story that we find in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Essentially, David takes a married woman named Bathsheba for himself. He commits adultery and impregnates Bathsheba. And instead of repenting here, David is determined to sweep his sin under the rug. And so he has Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, murdered. And now David is not only an adulterer, but he's a murderer. And then the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to confront David of his treachery. Nathan tells, tells David a parable about two, two men, one rich, one poor. The poor man had only one lamb who was like a child to him. He loved this lamb. The rich man had many flocks and herds. And one day the rich man prepares a meal and takes this poor man's one sheep and slaughters it for his guest. This is the parable that that Nathan tells to David. And after hearing this parable, David is enraged and says that this rich man deserves to die. And of course, Nathan exposes the log that is in David's eye and he says, you are the rich man in this story, David. And this is the occasion that is given to us in our text. This is the occasion for the writing of this psalm, the pouring out of David's heart to the Lord. David prostrates himself before the Lord, pleading for forgiveness. 
Now, as we look at Psalm 51 this evening, I want to really focus on the meaning of true repentance and how that is conveyed for us in this psalm. In the church, we often use the word repentance, but what does repentance really mean? Well, the word repentance in the New Testament is defined, a, defined as a changing or turning of mind. Even in the Old Testament, the word for repent literally means to turn. Now what this tells us about the meaning of the word repentance is that repentance requires change. Repentance is a turning away from sin and a turning towards God. Repentance is not just a feeling of remorse or guilt. Repentance is not, I'm sorry, I got caught, and now I'm confessing because I'm having to deal with the circumstances of this. Repentance is a turning away from sin and a turning toward God. True repentance is seen in the story of the prodigal son. He rejects his father. He squanders his inheritance, indulges the desires of the flesh. And and, and in the midst and the mire of muck of sin, he realizes his abject need for forgiveness and he flings himself at the foot of his father. This is true repentance. A sinner aware of their desperate need for Christ, clinging only to Christ and turning away from sin. False repentance, on the other hand, is seen in the life of Judas Iscariot. We read that after he betrayed Christ, he changed his mind, or he was filled with regret, as certain translations put it. And yet Judas never fully repented He was only sorry for what he had done. He only felt a superficial remorse, one that did not lead to everlasting life. Now as we look at Psalm 51 this evening, we see something of ourselves in David. The secret sins that we all hide. We couldn't imagine if our darkest thoughts were laid before all to see. And yet God sees them all. And so we must ask ourselves, will we confess our sin and seek the Lord while he may be found? In Christ, we will find a most glorious and loving Savior. In Christ, we will find redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Well, let's look together in our Bibles at Psalm 51. And tonight, I just want to draw out for you five elements of true repentance that we find in this psalm. Now, Hebrew poetry isn't exactly always systematic, but I think there are five themes that run through this psalm, and so instead of going through the psalm verse by verse, I'm going to connect the verses in the psalm that share a similar theme. So so our structure of the sermon this evening uh, will be largely thematic, so don't be alarmed when I jump from uh, verse to verse in the psalm. Now, the first thing that I want you to observe in this psalm is that true repentance is only possible because of Christ. True repentance is only made possible because of Christ. Look with me at verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Notice how David begins by pleading for mercy. He knows that he deserves the death penalty for his deeds. He has no leg to stand on. Indeed, the wages of sin is death. We all deserve death as the penalty for our sins. But David knows that God is a merciful God, faithful to his steadfast love, faithful to his covenant promises. And David asks that God would specifically blot out his transgressions. David asks for this in both verse one and verse nine, blot out my transgressions. Now when we hear this, this phrase blot out, we might think of blotting out a mistake that we made while writing with pen and ink. Uh, you know, we use a little whiteout or something like that to blot out our error. Uh, and this is really the heart of David's plea for mercy. In Colossians 2, we read this about Christ. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now the word in Colossians 2 there, the word for cancel, Christ canceled the record of debt. Uh, that word for cancel there is used uh, in the Septuagint, actually, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the same word for blot out. And this is important for us because it highlights a deeper meaning to our sins being blotted out. When David cries out to the Lord, blot out my transgressions. God doesn't simply arbitrarily remove David's sin and our sin. God is perfectly holy and just. God cannot simply overlook sin or slide it under the rug. The penalty for sin must be paid because God's justice requires it. But what we discover is that God blots out, God cancels our sin because of what Christ has done. And as we see in the New Testament in Colossians 2, as I just read, there's a legal element to this transaction. David's sins are blotted out because Christ nailed them to the tree. Christ has paid the ransom price. And David can only cry out in repentance and expect forgiveness because Christ fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. I mean, think about this for a second. After David's egregious sin, he pleads with God for forgiveness. And we read a chapter later after it After it lays out David's heinous sin, a chapter later we read, the Lord puts away David's sin. I mean, imagine that. How could a perfectly holy and just God blot out David's sin of adultery and murder only because of Christ's finished work on the cross? Think of Romans chapter 3. We read that God in his mercy only passed over former sins because of what Christ would accomplish on the cross. In this way, God is the just. He is still just, but he is the justifier, the one who justifies David. God is not simply choosing to look the other way because of David's sin. No, God sees that David's faith unites David to Christ. Now David's sins are counted as Christ's sins. And Christ's righteousness 
is counted as David's righteousness. Therefore, God is still just, as Paul says, and yet God is the one who justifies us. And David notes him notes this himself at the end of verse 4 in Psalm 51. God is justified in his words. David's true repentance is only possible because Christ canceled the record of debt that stood between David and God Almighty. God also plead, or David also pleads with God for a supernatural cleansing that is only made possible through the blood of Christ. We see this in verse 2 and in verse 7. Now, if you've been paying attention to uh, Grant's sermons on Leviticus, which I commend to you, uh, you'll remember that the shedding of blood must happen for the removal of sin. This is what we see in the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, that blood must be shed for the atoning of sin. This is what Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sin. And it is Christ's blood alone that can ultimately cleanse David from his sin and cleanse us from our sin. If we walk in the light, the blood of Christ cleanses us. For David and for those who are in Christ, we are adorned in Christ's righteousness. Our robes have been made white. We have been purified by the blood of the Lamb. And this is what is represented for us in the washing of the waters of baptism. Our baptism testifies to the washing away of sin and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. The waters of baptism are a removal of dirt and signify for us the forgiveness of sins. My wife and I were recently hanging out in our living room and we were sitting on the couch We noticed a tiny little speck, a little coffee stain right on our rug in this little white square, perfectly white square. And uh, so the next day, Braylon decided that we should have a go at trying to remove this small stain. So she pulled out some OxyClean, which is special solution, advanced formula, all that jazz. Uh, We scrubbed down this whole white square section certain that this tough stain remover would get rid of this little coffee stain. Well, to our dismay, the next day we came downstairs and after our drug had dried, instead of this little teeny coffee stain in the middle of this white square rug, we find that the entire rug is this blotchy brown color. There must have been some chemical reaction between the OxyClean and and the wool. Needless to say, we needed some marital counseling uh, after that. Well, friends, our sin is a stain. And the harder that we try to wash away the stain of sin on our own without clinging to Christ, the messier our lives will become. We can't wash away sin on our own. We'll just make things worse, kind of like what we did with our rug. The washing away of sins in Psalm 51 is a supernatural act. We need divine cleansing. And so often when we fall, we try to clean up our own mess using our own strength instead of running to Christ. Christ's blood has been shed for you for the remission of sins. And with David, after we fall, we must truly repent and trust that God will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Now, secondly, what we see in this psalm is that true repentance confesses wrongdoing. True repentance confesses wrongdoing. As Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, David acknowledges his debts and pleads for forgiveness. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David is honest with the Lord and true confession is honest. David doesn't try to cover up his sin like Adam and Eve did in the garden. No, David boldly and resolutely acknowledges his evil deeds. David continues his confession of wrongdoing in verse four. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now this verse has created problems for some people, but it's in the Bible, so we have to deal with it. And the question is, how could David say in verse four that he has only sinned against God? Not only did he take Bathsheba for himself, a married woman, and commit a sexual immorality, but David murders Uriah. And you're telling me that David has only sinned against God? What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? Where is the justice of God in this confession? Well, there are really two things here. Firstly, David's confession does not exclude the fact that he has sinned against others. David is simply stressing that ultimately any sin, whether directed towards God or towards our neighbor, is a transgression against God Almighty since God is the one who gives the law. In other words, in verse four, David is highlighting for us the sinfulness of sin. Any sin, any sin that we commit, sin against other humans or sins against God, they are an affront to the creator. Dr. Boyce, in his commentary on this passage, argues that David can say that he has only sinned against God to highlight that all humans are made in God's image. And thus, when we sin against fellow image bearers, we actually are sinning against God. This is the second part. The second part of the answer to this verse is that when we sin against others, we are sinning against image bearers, those who contain the image of God. This does not minimize David's sin against human beings, right? Because David definitely sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. Verse four simply highlights that all sin at a root level is sin against God. David continues his confession in verse five. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Here he acknowledges his original sin. David is tracing his sin all the way back to his conception. He is highlighting for us our human condition. We are born in sin. This is the result of the fall. Note that David doesn't say that he was born into the world in a neutral state. This Lockean idea that we are born into the world as blank slates and that we are simply products of circumstance, this is fundamentally antithetical to biblical teaching. We are not born innocent. 
We aren't born in a neutral state with our minds ready to be impressed upon. No, David says we are not just born in sin, we are conceived in sin. We trace this back to the garden. When Adam sinned, all humanity sinned. By way of ordinary generation, all of humanity is born by nature in sin. And notice that David doesn't blame his circumstances in his confession. He doesn't say, well, I've been dealt an unfair hand by God. No, David places the crosshairs directly on himself and confesses his fundamental depravity in his own human nature. So often when we are confronted by our own sin, we point the finger at others. Well, if only you knew how hard my life really is. If only you knew what led up to that sin. When was the last time that you pointed the finger at yourself? Brothers and sisters, I would encourage us that as we confess our sin to our loving Heavenly Father, we ought to point the finger at ourselves. True repentance confesses wrongdoing. Thirdly, what we find in Psalm 51 is that true repentance is internal and not merely external. It's possible to repent and go without sinning externally, but to never truly repent in your heart of hearts. As we see in verse 6, God delights in an authentic faith and not a double-minded faith. God delights in truth in the inward being, meaning that God desires that our very souls would truly pant for the Lord as the deer pants for streams of water. God despises hypocrisy when we behave righteously and when we say the right things, but in our hearts and behind closed doors, we blaspheme God. God is seeking true worshipers. In verse 10, we also see that true repentance is of the heart, not merely by deed. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. It's beautiful. Scholar Derek Kidner says this about this verse. With the word create, David asks for nothing less than a miracle. The word for create here is found in the creation account in Genesis. God creates all things out of nothing, ex nihilo. And this is why what David is asking for is truly a miracle. It is only God that can create a new heart within David. This is what is spoken about in Ezekiel chapter 36. God God takes our hearts of stone and gives us hearts of flesh, living hearts, he gives to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to be made a new creation in Christ. We are made alive to Christ and dead to sin. David is pleading with God for a supernatural work, pleading with God for something that only he can do. David continues in verse 11 and pleads that the Holy Spirit would not depart from him. Now you might find this an odd thing to pray for since we know that God's elect are secure in their salvation 
and they cannot lose the Holy Spirit. But what David is saying here uh, is something that is similar to what we find in Hebrews chapter six. David is saying, Lord, don't, me, don't let me be like someone who has only tasted the Holy Spirit and not truly received him. David's prayer for internal renewal continues in verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see, the sacrificial system was only a type and shadow of the things to come. Yes, blood had to be shed for sin, but what David highlights here is that sacrifices could never truly save. We see this in Hebrews 10, that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. These sacrifices were never truly efficacious. What David says is that true sacrifice is a penitent heart, a broken heart that is torn up over the severity of sin. This is why Jesus says that I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, Christ is concerned about our hearts. Our external adherence to the law cannot save us. It is our faith that unites us to Christ and it is through our union with Christ that we are saved. For in Christ we find one who was sacrificed once and for all upon a tree, a sacrifice that is truly effective for all who repent and believe. Fourthly, what we see in this psalm is that true repentance results in joy. In verse eight, David says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David's prayer of repentance is a prayer for a restoration of joy. Restore to me the joy of my salvation, says David in verse 12. Sin is ultimately a loss of communion with God. It is a break of fellowship with God. Our greatest joy in this life is to experience the presence of God himself. In fact, the chief reason that we exist on this planet is to bring glory to God and to take joy in him. God's standard for living is not arbitrary. In fact, living rightly before God with the law of God as our guide is the recipe for the greatest joy you can experience in this life. Sin may provide you with a false sense of joy or happiness for a fleeting moment, but the joy of the Lord is found in living a life for God. And God is not a mean father. He has not created us to live within certain parameters just to be a killjoy. No, true joy, everlasting joy, is found in living our lives unto God and rejoicing in his righteous law. To be in the presence of God is to experience the fullness of joy. And this is what David is praying for, a restoration of that joy. 
And notice something peculiar here at the end of verse eight. David prays that the bones that God has broken would rejoice. You see, even though we have forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus, our sin still has consequences in this life. David's bones are still broken. Even though God has removed David's sin from him as far as the east is from the west, we will walk with a limp in this earthly pilgrimage because of sin. We see this in David's life, for example, right? Even though we read in the text that God puts away David's sin, we read of severe consequences still. He loses his child, his child dies. Sin still has consequences for us in this life. But the beauty of the gospel is that the broken bones of our lives, our broken lives, broken though they be, they still bear witness to the overwhelming grace of Jesus Christ. Our broken bones still cry out in joy and cling to the Almighty. The fifth thing that we see in this psalm is that repentance is others-oriented. What do I mean by that? Well, as we see in verses 13 through 15, uh, David is not content to simply repent uh, and be forgiven by God, but David moves from inward renewal to outward praise. David is concerned with teaching transgressors God's ways. David desires to sing aloud of God's righteousness and to declare God's praise as we read in the text. Friends, this is a beautiful display a display of how the gospel is an overflow of our hearts. How can we but help to sing God's praises when we consider what it is that we've been saved from? Our lives are ultimately a display of God's grace. And as living sacrifices, we are living examples of God's mercy. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And David can't keep quiet about this. True repentance and forgiveness is a display of God's goodness to the world. When was the last time that you recounted goodness, the goodness of God in your life to others? Our time on earth is short. And I would pray that we would be reminded by David to sing of God's mercy and declare his praises while we yet have breath in our lungs. We see that David's repentance is also others-oriented in verses 18 through 19. D.A. Carson writes that when David prays that the walls would be built up, he is asking God to make the covenant community secure. Zion, that's the place where God dwells, and Jerusalem is where God's people dwell. So David's prayer is a restoration for the meeting of God and his people. David recognizes that his sin not only has individual ramifications, but corporate, corporate ones. And brothers and sisters, is this not true for us in the church? Our sin is like a cancer. Oftentimes we selfishly think that our sin only affects us. It only has repercussions for us. But in reality, 
we are to take the New Testament's teaching on this seriously, we are one body in Christ made up of many members. And our sin affects others in the church, whether we like to admit it or not. This is a sobering reality for us. And this is why we ought to pray for unity and purity within our church. Well, as we come to a close this evening, I want to leave you with two final reflections. The first one being this. No sin is too great for God. If you are here this evening and you feel as if you are somehow beyond God's reach, confess your sin to God. And if you confess your sin to God, know that he will be faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Don't think to yourself that you are beyond God's grace. That's the devil speaking to you. Paul was once a murderer. Peter denied Christ. As we see, David was a murderer and an adulterer. All were desperate sinners made saints by the cleansing blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6 is a powerful, powerful illustration of this principle. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul goes through a list of sinners, the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, gluttons, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. Paul says those who live in these sins and do not repent will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then Paul says, such were some of you. Speaking about believers, speaking about you, speaking about me. Paul goes on to say, you were washed, sanctified, and justified in Christ by the Spirit. You see, we were enemies of God, and we have been washed and cleansed. There is no sin that is beyond the reach of God's grace. But you might ask, is there a sin that is too great that you can't be forgiven from? Doesn't the Bible say that there is a sin that leads to death? Well, yes, there is a sin that leads to death. But that sin is the sin of unrepentance, the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, the sin of hardening your heart against the Holy Spirit. Unless your heart is hardened towards God, you cannot commit a sin that God won't forgive if you repent. And if you're wondering, how do I know if I am truly repentant? How, how can I know? Well, think of John the Baptist's words. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And as Christ says, you will know them by their fruits. True repentance will result in a life of fruit. And of course, the good fruit that you bear will never save you, but it is an evidence of true repentance. And this is one of the ways that God equips his church. God has given us overseers in the church to keep watch over our souls. And as they keep watch, they examine the fruit of repentance in our lives. And if need be, they admonish, encourage, exhort So take heart this evening 
and know that true repentance will produce good fruit in your life. The second reflection is this. Sometimes the Lord uses the sin in our lives to keep us on our knees. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says that he pleads with the Lord three times, Lord, remove this thorn from my side. Paul says that this thorn in his flesh was sent to keep him from being conceited. And when Paul asks that God would remove this thorn, God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God doesn't remove this thorn from Paul. No, God reminds Paul that he is weak and that in his weakness, God's power and grace are displayed. Our greatest sins are overcome by God's greatest act of mercy. And this is the heart of the gospel, is it not? That our greatest sins are overcome because of God's greatest act of mercy in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we have reconciliation with God if we truly repent and place our faith in Christ. May we boast in our weakness and may we give and may God give us grace to have broken spirits and clean and contrite hearts. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, your power is made perfect in weakness. We ask that you would give us truly repentant hearts, hearts that are inwardly renewed, hearts that love you, hearts that seek to honor you in all things. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. We ask these things in Jesus' strong name. Amen.